morning, guys. Um, I've got some books on the table back there. Uh, I've written a book called The Power of Forgiveness. Is maybe it was up here earlier? I think um, it's a powerful ministry tool, and uh, they're available back there. Um, so if you desire to have one, it's also available in the Res Life bookstore. So we'll just go ahead and uh, just let me let you know that in advance. Um, I just want to pray a blessing over uh, the speaking here a minute. So, Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. I ask, God, that your Holy Spirit is here and it ministers into the hearts of men. God, that we become clearer, more focused, and just loving servants in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to break this talk down into uh, a couple little segments, but uh, if I was sharing this uh, if I was talking again, I wouldn't really share this, but I'm with you guys every, every Tuesday morning, um, so I'm going to just talk a little bit about the book writing process, then we'll get into my story, why I wrote it, uh, talk about forgiveness, and then maybe we'll open up this area as an altar if there are some issues that uh, somebody would like to be prayed for. I think that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, the book, The Power of Forgiveness, was released about six weeks ago. My wife had a real good time with us. She went on Amazon.com and said, the book is released. You are number 1,297,796 ranked in the world of authors. <laughs> That's dead last. <laughs> on its day. Uh, she also checked yesterday, and I've climbed to 553,813. So we're on the move. Um, <laughs> writing a book is an interesting process. I didn't write it to be popular. I didn't write it to check a, uh, an item off my bucket list. I did not, uh, I didn't have any specific reason other than the fact that God said, write a book. I have a story. Um, I was in a, a victim of an armed robbery back when I was 16 years old. And, uh, so this is the story. So, uh, the time to do it was now. So I started writing this book uh, May the 27th of 2016. I basically was done probably by October. And then uh, I was, you know, editing and re-editing about 400 times to get it to where it actually is a nice readable version. Um, in meetings with my publisher, they asked uh, things like uh, what group, what gender, what topics, what area of interest, so they could best determine how to market a book. That's part of the process of... Uh, how you take a book to the next level. Um, this is my, my response to that. As I said, uh, the book, I'd like it to be marketed to somebody 13 to 113, male or female, any race, any region, any country in the world. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, that's an impossible task. Give, you, give us greater focus. And I explained God said it. Uh, I was going to, and, and I was going to do it. For me, it wasn't a matter of writing to try to uh, challenge the, the reader's intellect. The purpose of my writing was to penetrate the heart. And that's what I did. And then they agreed to it. When signing with uh, the publisher, which uh, was a pretty big deal, that's a pretty exciting moment, uh, they said something that just absolutely took my heart and, and just... It meant very much to me. They said, if your book is successful, it gets out, your book will live four to six generations beyond you. 
four to six generations. My son Mike, my grandson Cayman, his sons, his grandsons, and so on. Wow, what a legacy that we can live. That's not about my ego and going, wow, look what I did. It has been my prayer for 10 or 15 years to reach the world for millions and millions of people for Christ. So God is opening the door for that. I wrote the book in a way that uh, the book could be a ministry tool. Uh, in fact, I had somebody come by, one of my old employees come by uh, my office this last week and said, my dad's dying of cancer. He's got about two to four weeks to live. He's becoming kind of incoherent or you know, difficulty communicating. And I had one of these on my desk. I said, Pat, on page 146, I circled it with a pencil and I marked it with a little uh, paper. I said, here is the walk of salvation. You can take your father through this prayer of salvation. And he said, I don't really know how to do that. And I said, we'll pray for your dad. His dad's name is Eugene. And we, in my office, we just, a bunch of us gathered and we prayed for his dad, that he has this tool. So if you end up being, uh, and I'm just going to say this, if you're, if you're a person that it's difficult to share, sometimes family members, these things are difficult. They're hard to be able to maybe get somebody uh, to share the word with them. It's just, it's just hard. This book gives you that opportunity. So not trying to be a book salesman. I'm just saying that these things are a tool in your hands, okay? It was interesting, uh, again, as my wife is kind of a computer geek, um, 48, after, 48 hours after the book was released, uh, she's wanted to see where it's being sold and what's going on. And she notices that uh, within 48 hours, the book is being pirated in Europe. Uh, it's being re-released um, <laughs> under somebody else's name. And uh, so we, we sat there and we said, well, what, what should we maybe, you know, let's send a letter to the publisher that they know that they can send a note out of cease and desist and these kind of things, a legal perspective on it. But Rob and I went to prayer and we said, God, you know where this book is. You know where it's going. You know the hearts of the people. Penetrate it. Okay. I don't care about getting the money back because you get a few dollars a book. It's really about getting that word out. Wherever it goes and however it gets there, that's all that matters to me. It's never been about money or any of that kind of thing. But it is about sharing the gospel. I'm going to give a brief description here on um, my, my younger life. I was grown up here in uh, West Michigan, Wyoming here. Um, I'm the... Youngest of four children, mom and dad married until my father passed away when I was uh, 19. Uh, went to church at Wesley Park United Methodist Church on Michael until I was probably in the second or third grade. So we had a little bit of biblical uh, education or foundation in my life. Um, I don't really know the reason why we stopped going to church as a family, but we did. And... Uh, we always prayed at dinner and prayed at bedtime, but it was, that was about uh, the extent of uh, the relationship with Christ. When it was pretty distant. So as I grew up, uh, my story really uh, for this book's purpose uh, begins when I was uh, 16 years old. Uh, on a very, very hot day in August, uh, I visited my girlfriend uh, at a, sometime in mid-morning and went off to work at a grocery store, a local grocery store. The day was probably 96 degrees. 
and you're just reeking hot with sweat. The store I worked in was air, uh, not air conditioned, and uh, that's an interesting take on what I'm going to share with you in just a moment. I uh, went, went to work, and I was going to work 12 to 10. Uh, after 10 o'clock p.m., I was going to meet friends for ice cream and go out and have a good time. Um, but I'll tell you, as a 16-year-old, I was a typical hormone-raging 16-year-old and quite badly misbehaving in the ways of what young people do. Well, I went through work, worked all night. Uh, my manager of the grocery store said, Mike, uh, I'm going to have uh, your coworker Jim help me put cash in the safe. I'd like you to mop up some areas of the floor. Sometimes Jim mopped, I put money in the safe, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that particular night, um, I was in the back room doing this. Uh, it was hot. I was sweaty. It's dark. When hidden in the back room were two guys, and they jumped me. And they held a knife to my throat and a knife in my back. And later I found out that they were two brothers. One was the epitome of, I am the crazy, crazy brother that screamed and screamed and screamed. I want to effing kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he proceeded to do this for a couple of minutes as he took my hair he pulled it back and had the knife under my throat so that I was looking right up at the ceiling. The other brother held the hands behind my back and put the knife touching against my lower spine. And they proceeded to just go nutso about wanting to kill me. This was pretty traumatic. I mean, uh, uh, talked to Mike Benson a little bit about this. Mike says, well, you got this is that fight or flight kind of moment. Or what do you do, you know? I mean, can you fight to get out? I had no chance. I was just, boom, overtaken like this. They came out of the dark, and, and, they, and they had me. That ordeal went on for 48 minutes. And through that 48 minutes, I went through extreme highs of anxiety, and I went through some extreme lows, meaning I don't care what you do. I mean, I, there's nothing I can do. As the one brother continued to, it was like you, you pulled a string on his back. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to effing kill you. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't make eye contact. Don't look at my face. After a little while, um, I said, God, wow. I've, I've really been a screw-up up to 16 years old here, and I, I think I'm going to die. And uh, there, there's no doubt, as I could feel dripping coming down my, down my throat, and my shirt is wet. I can feel the blade against my, my, my throat. What am I going to do? I had these moments of feeling like I could watch my parents look at me in a casket, how upset they were. Crazy, crazy stuff. Well, one of the brothers uh, said, well, what are we going to do now? We um, didn't intend on seeing me in the back room. They thought they were hiding there so they could go up and rob the guys as they were putting money in the safe. One says, well, I'm going to run and I'm going to go find some clothesline. So the crazy brother stayed with me and continued to threaten me and, and uh, hold me against my will. The brother, other brother comes back, tie my hands behind my back, or tie my ankles together. And uh, I don't know if these guys were expert Boy Scouts, but those are the best knots that uh, anybody could have ever tied. Well, now what do we do with a guy, a 
Yet, uh, I've gained about 150 pounds since then, so I was, uh, I was about 130 pounds of six foot four at that time, so pretty, pretty skinny dude. Um, they took, and they said, well, let's lock him in a cooler. So um, it would have been nice if maybe they had led me to the cooler and then tied me up, but they made me hop with a knife to my throat and a knife to my back with my hands tied behind my back for about 75 hops across the floor. That right there is what I consider to be a miracle. I didn't die right on the spot. Again, my throat just, it was just dripping. I'm wearing a red T-shirt, and it's just solid wet. And uh, I cried out to God and said, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you forever. I'm sorry. I'm a screw-up. And that's, that was really kind of my moment in life, that God wasn't the God of a million miles away. He was right here. I went into uh, the cooler. They blocked it shut and uh, ran away. There was no way I could get out. So I, you know, in my probably best MacGyver moves, I went and tried to take the rope behind my back and tried to cut the rope on a milk crate or something. Nothing worked. So I just sat back, looked around, tried to figure things out. What am I going to do? God, man, this this is real. I I don't even understand what, what happened. I mean, this morning I was just in such, you know, and all of a sudden life had just dramatically changed. And this was a big, big deal. It wasn't like, you know, this, this, was, this, was, a, this was a moment in my life that it was def- definitely defining me and changing me. The good part about it is I met Jesus Christ for the first time, really, that I could say for the first time in my life. Um, so the robbers went up and they uh, uh, got to the safe as uh, it had just been closed. They, they, they got no money, so they robbed the manager and the other guy, tied them up. Uh, they were able to, um, at a later moment, become untied, call the police, and then they were worried about me. A police came. Uh, so I'm in this cooler. I can't hear anything except for the motors running inside the cooler, and I'm just kind of waiting and praying. And I hear just steps coming. Then the door gets kicked in, and then it's two Wyoming policemen. And uh, this was as frightening, guys, as being tied up and knifed to the throat and things. Uh, but what happened was, <laughs> there's a revolver like this in my face from two angles. Back then, they weren't uh, fancy 9 millimeters; They were probably 38 specials or whatever police did. The revolver uh, things, uh, hammers were pulled back. And at two feet, I am staring into the end of a, end of a gun barrel. And the policemen were not kind to me. They literally said, put your hands up. They didn't know if I was a good guy or a bad guy. I said, I can't. I'm tied up. And we had this stare down of moment that it seemed like it went for a couple of minutes, but it was probably 20, 30 seconds. And they didn't move. They held right on me. And it was like blankety blank, raise your hands. Couldn't do it. So one policeman came right up to almost to my face while the other one slowly turned me around, and he said, oh, he is tied up. This is the victim. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> okay, so I survived, the, I, I survived the robbery. Um, when I asked God for protection, I asked for his uh, covering over my body. Um, my, my, uh, what I was feeling was nothing but sweat running down my neck, down my face, down my shirt. 
I was never really, the skin was never pierced, although there were red kind of slashing marks on my throat, but my, I never dropped one ounce of blood, which I think was amazing. That was back in about 1975. Nine years ago, I had been carrying this burden that I hated these guys. And I don't mean a little bit. I mean, I hated them a lot. And I will write from time to time um, airplanes when I'm traveling, doing things. But bottom line is I, I would just go ahead and write, and I would just go ahead and, and try to take my time and, and figure things out. And I felt God say to me in Colossians 13, uh, 3.13, forgive those that have hurt you as I've forgiven you. And I absolutely, astoundingly said, no, but it wasn't really that nice of a no back to our God. Uh, but I, uh, I began to think about that. I began to pray about that. I began to pray and began to offer forgiveness to these guys that had done this to me. As that happened, I felt the airplane that I was in just elevate like thousands of pounds came off of my shoulders. I was carrying this burden for 38 years as an adult. My sons are in their low 30s. This is the first time that they know my story. I just held it inside. Crazy, crazy. Um, today, I don't know their names. I don't know if they're alive or dead. I don't know if they're in prison. But I pray for their salvation. I pray that I can share Jesus with these guys someday. Or at least that they meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords before that happens. Living with unforgiveness can lead to a lot of negative emotions. Anger, resentment, bitterness, retaliation. Maybe our upbringing or our culture and how we act and how we're raised determine how we will react. Forgiveness really is in three categories. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. Forgiveness with the Father, forgiveness when we've been hurt by others, and forgiveness for ourselves. Forgiveness from God the Father, Luke 177. Uh, give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Simply, if our hearts are right with God, we'll have a greater understanding of what true forgiveness means. If we've been hurt by others, we need to forgive them. This is very difficult. Life is complicated and hard, and sometimes it leaves us disappointed. When someone hurts and abuses us, we've been treated unfairly. Or maybe someone has even cheated us, maybe a spouse. The act of forgiveness is a submission of your will and your first step toward freedom. Thirdly, we've all made mistakes, and we need to forgive ourselves. Sometimes we make mistakes with significant consequences. I lie. I lust after others. I sneak looking at porn. I steal time from my employer. I steal items. I am a cheater and abuser and on and on. But men, let me tell you, you're not defined by your past mistakes. Your hurts are abuse, but rather your future in Jesus Christ. The act of unforgiveness will allow you to burn, stew with anger, constantly living and reliving the past. 
We all know people that live back at a particular time in their life when something like this has happened. Free yourself from the pain of the misery of the past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, You are a new creation in Christ. We need to know, hear this. We need to know this. And you need to live it out. For generations, my family reacted in an unforgiveness sort of way, maybe holding grudges, bitter disappointments, angers, and resentments. But my heart needed to change. I wanted to be different than what my grandparents may have modeled before me. My family uh, tree needed to change so future generations can live a Christ-centered future, uh, future, not reliving and reliving and reliving the mistakes of the past. Men, you are created to live a vibrant life full of opportunities without fear and shame on your past. Oz Hillman wrote in this book, uh, Listening to the Father's Heart, shame wants to remind you of your past failures and to keep you in bondage to those memories. My grace of forgiveness sees your future, not your past. When I think of forgiveness, I see Moses is here and I see Bobby's here. Moses and Diane walked out forgiveness. I wrote a chapter in this book called Forgiveness is a Process, and it is about Moses and Diane's life. Their grandson was murdered last year in July on the streets of Holland, Michigan. Robin and I have met with Moses and Diane a bunch of times. We've prayed for them. We've walked alongside them. And I can proudly say, you are an example, Moses, of forgiveness. Thank you so much. And Bobby, you spoke maybe six, six weeks ago, a couple months ago, and you spoke about ministering to a man who is now your children's stepfather. I believe that was your statement. This is an exact moment of what really forgiveness is. You care enough to even through the hurt, the heartache, and disappointment to be able to share Jesus with those that have probably hurt you the most. Many times barriers to your physical healing are caught up in a web of maybe unforgiveness. Men, your identity is not in your position in life, your job title, how many degrees you have. Your identity, as I repeat myself again, is in Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. I'm going to give a couple of more book quotes, and then we'll bring this to a close. Uh, in the book, uh, Grace for the Moment, written by Max Lacato, he says, The pain of unforgiveness and hatred will break your back. The load of bitterness is too heavy. Your knees will buckle under the strain and your heart will break beneath the weight. I recently read a book, Divine Direction, uh, by author Greg, and I think I'm saying his uh, last name, Groshaw. Groshaw. Greg is a pastor with eight church locations. This, this is a big deal. A number of years ago, I preached about secrecy and confession. Our church set up a temporary companion website. On this website, people could post their most carefully guarded secrets 100% anonymously. In the first two months alone, there were 300,000 people who visited that website. Tens of thousands of people, 
tens of thousands of people revealed the terrible burdens that were weighing them down, including sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic abuse, marital affairs of every kind, addiction of every kind, more than you can even name. And it goes on and on and on and on. Men, don't let another moment go by with the hardness of your heart.